This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Denise Dupra, a general internist involved in primary care at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and an associate director of education for the Center for Individualized Medicine in Rochester. Over the next few weeks, we're going to devote a mini series of Mayo Clinic Talks to the incredible field of genes in your health. We'll discuss concepts and genetics that are essential to providing the best care of your patients and how you can apply this information to individualize and optimize patient care in your own practice. Today, we are joined by Dr. Sanjay Pruthi, a Mayo Clinic physician in breast disease. Dr. Pruthi received her MD degree from the University of Manitoba in Canada in 1990 and completed a family medicine residency at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. She was the director of the Breast Diagnostic Clinic at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester and is a consultant in the Department of General Internal Medicine and a professor of medicine. Her research area of interest is in breast cancer prevention. Her clinical expertise is in the management of women at increased risk for breast cancer, hereditary breast and ovarian cancer, and in providing preoperative counseling to women newly diagnosed with breast cancer. She is the Mayo Clinic Principal Investigator on several national breast cancer prevention and biomarker trials aimed at reducing the risk of breast cancer. She has collaborated in other women's health trials studying complementary and alternative therapies for the management of menopausal symptoms and improving the quality of breast cancer survivors' lives. Dr. Pruthi is the Medical Director for the Division of Health, Education, and Content Services and serves as a Chief Medical Editor for the mayoclinic.org website. She's also an Associate Medical Director for the Department of Development. Dr. Pruthi, we could spend the entire time here, I think, talking about your accolades and what you do, but today we're really going to be talking about breast cancer and breast cancer genes, and I think we'll probably delve quite deeply into the whole area of hereditary breast and ovarian cancer. I'm so delighted you're going to be here with us today. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Pruthi. Sanja, what can you tell us about breast cancer risk? And in particular, some of the things you're doing with, I guess you call SNPs, which are a completely foreign concept, I think, to most of us who are involved in general internal medicine. Absolutely. And thank you for having me on the podcast, Denise. And it's such a pleasure to be here and um, share with you the work we're doing in what we're calling precision prevention. What can we do today as clinicians in practice to better predict and determine who is at high enough risk that you would want to intervene and um, make an appropriate decision about a intervention to reduce an individual's risk for getting breast cancer. So when I talk about risk assessment, we need to be in a better place today with accuracy in how we predict who is going to develop a disease. And in my case, who's going to be at high risk to develop breast cancer. For years, we've had classical risk factors. You know them. They're all common in our practice. We call them our reproductive risk factors, such as the age at which you had your first child, breastfeeding, the number of children you've had, your menarche and your menopause age. But we need to get further from there because there's now more information about risk assessment that entails a family history. So, you know, family history is a classic example of a risk factor that one would want to include in a risk assessment. And 
more has come along and we call that mammographic density. So these are what they are called the classical risk factors I just described. Where we're moving into the space of is genomic risk factors. These are those SNPs, those single nucleotide polymorphisms, which are actually nothing more than your common genetic variants. And the research that we're doing is trying to understand if a combined effect of these SNPs, multiple of them, can better predict and stratify risk. That is known as the polygenic risk score. And in our patients' clinical encounters today, we are doing the classic risk factors and entering it into a, what we call a risk calculation model. This allows us to get a number to predict what is someone's five-year risk, 10-year risk, or lifetime risk for developing breast cancer. Where we need to go now is to take that SNP information, that polygenic risk score, and include it, incorporate it into these models so that we get a more accurate risk assessment to be able then, as we talk about, intervening to make better decisions for our patients in terms of who could be one to take a drug to prevent breast cancer, we call that preventive medication, who needs more intensive surveillance like breast MRI in conjunction with mammography, and who is in a situation where they are now someone you should be talking to about prophylactic risk-reducing surgeries such as mastectomy or bilateral salping oophorectomy, of course, in our very high-risk patients. But Patients are looking to us to say, can you do a better job of stratifying my risk so you can tell me if I'm that high risk, what are the options I should be considering and guide me through that decision-making process? That's fascinating information because, I mean, as a primary care doctor, I feel really strongly that we haven't done a great job with getting that family history. And that's one of my torches, I guess, I carry, you know, more information about family when you can get it. And then the classic risk factors. But the genomic piece obviously is the newest and the most exciting in some respects. But does everybody who has breast cancer, who has the classic obvious risk factors, but maybe they don't have a family history, do they need genomic testing? Should every woman get these genomic pieces and get SNP data? So let's step back a little bit here. And I want to just qualify what I mean by genomic, polygenic versus a monogenic, which is the mutation that is commonly known as the BRCA1, BRCA2, CHECK2 mutations. These are where the monogenic mutation exists and puts somebody at a significantly higher risk for breast cancer. Now, why I want to separate that from polygenic risk, which is those SNPs, is that for years we were able to categorize, if you took a pie chart, you would be able to say 80% of women will have a sporadic breast cancer. We don't know what caused it. Unknown risk factors, what else could have been playing a role and why that individual developed breast cancer. Then we have our familial risk, which is family histories, maternal aunt, grandmother with breast cancer played some role where there's a familial inheritance pattern. The hereditary pattern is those monogenic mutations, but of which we only know of these 5% that are these very well-known mutations. What we are learning now is that there are these other hereditary polygenic SNPs 
that we would want to test for. So you asked me a good question. If somebody comes to me and says, I have a very high risk family history, the family member in my family tested negative for the gene. Dr. Pruthi, what else is going on here? We must have something going on that is genetically predisposing us to getting breast cancer. Are there other genomic information you can test for? Therein lies when I would want to do SNPs, right? And it's a blood test that we are able to do today. But I want to give you a little history behind this. This is not information that we just said, oh, these are the 20 SNPs that are going to work and go and test for them. There has been a large genome-wide association study underway where thousands of women who have had breast cancer in a European consortium were tested for their SNPs to see if we could identify these high-risk SNPs. And today there are over 200 to close to 300 of them. And I will tell you maybe five years from now, if you talk to me, Denise, there may be 500 of these SNPs. This is a moving space as we're learning more. Was exciting about the time in which this came to us today in the breast clinic is that our researchers were able to tell us we can now test for these 200 plus SNPs. You now, Dr. Pruthi, and your colleagues in the breast clinic determine who should go and get tested. And that is where we created a better understanding of who are those people who will benefit from getting their SNPs tested because they already have some existing risk factors and you want to know if the SNPs are going to bring new information that could give them more accuracy. You are a very high risk individual for which we need to act on. Now, I will tell you a little bit more about the clinical trial that's underway where we are using SNPs in this setting and incorporating it into these models to get us better risk assessment. But where I think it's exciting and you asked me the question in the future, why couldn't an average risk woman come to me and say, should I get a mammogram? When should I start screening with mammograms? Why should I start screening with mammograms? Are you going to give me more information that is unique to me to tell me I have enough risk that I should be considered somebody who should start screening now, go every year and continue screening because of my high risk. And where it is so exciting in this space is I, um, I sat on the uh, President's Cancer Council during the pandemic when we realized that there were suddenly a potential risk of resource issues with people getting access to mammography. And the question had been raised, who should be getting a mammogram when your resources are tight? And you could potentially have identified what would be what I would call a easy to obtain risk assessment to determine who could be getting screening. And it was exciting because there's so much discussion about how SNPs could potentially be that genomic risk that could help us better stratify who should be going for a mammogram tomorrow. We're not there yet. But I think as you talk about SNPs, I think in the next five to 10 years, we are going to be looking at SNPs for complex diseases, not only cancer screening, breast, ovarian, prostate, but even maybe heart disease and other complex diseases that having this additional information could make it more relevant to a more efficient screening, early detection, use of testing. That's really important information because I think most of us, when we think about genetic risk of cancer, are familiar with 
BRCA1, BRCA2, and I have a CHECK2 patient in my practice. And so we know it's autosomal dominant. You either get it or you don't get it. And I actually have two questions for you. The first question is, in these monogenic diseases, the BRCAs and the CHECK2, is there a role for SNP testing in those groups, which, because I know sometimes there's a estimate of breast cancer risk, but in particular in BRCA2, that estimate is actually quite wide for an individual, what their risk of breast cancer might be. And so let me ask you that question first. In those conditions that we know are typically autosomal dominant, is SNP testing valuable to better hone or better make an estimate for that one individual? Because you're really talking about truly individualized medicine, looking at one person's genome and saying, for you, you have these other things that really tell us about you and what your risk is. I am so glad you asked that question. And I'll, I'll tell you why this is an extremely important group to be doing SNP analysis and SNP testing and polygenic risk scores. So back to the genome-wide association studies, they have done the work. The research in the genetic community has now gone on to do exactly what you have described is understanding, are there a set of SNPs that are combined in these mutations, such as the ATM, the CHECK2, and the BRCA1, BRCA2, PAL-B mutations, and they have now been able to identify those. And we are in a position in a clinical trial setting today at the Mayo Clinic to be testing these mutation carriers and getting their SNPs in a model that is known as the CAN-RISK model and giving them the information you just said today when I didn't have my SNPs, what was my five-year, 10-year lifetime looking at? And when you incorporated my SNPs based on my mutation and which of those SNPs I inherited as the validation of the models along those different mutations were able to be collected and run that in these models and recalculate what my five, 10, and lifetime risk looks like, because you are correct, what we tell women today when you get a BRCA mutation that you have anywhere from a 40 to 90% lifetime risk for breast cancer, and they look at me and they say, am I at the 40? Am I at the 60? Am I at 80 or 90? Who's going to tell me that? Now, in the clinical trial setting, in this population of patients, we are enrolling on the trial. We are able to now use those SNPs, knowing their mutation, and incorporating it into the CAN risk model and giving them information that they would never have had two years ago had they not been on the trial and telling them, I can now tell you if I was to give you your 5, 10 and lifetime risk, someone with a potential high SNP load could be hearing your five-year risk before we ran the model, before we knew your SNPs was predicted at 18%, your 10-year risk at 30%, lifetime at 90. Now I can tell you with your SNPs that your high SNP load and your mutation, your lifetime, five-year risk has now gone from 18 to 25. Your 10-year has gone from 30 to 40, and your lifetime is actually closer to 90. 
And they're like, wow, that means I do need to act in the next five to 10 years on doing something where I've had others whose SNP loads were lower with the same mutation, had less of the SNPs, they recalculated and they're actually at 5% five-year risk. And they're looking at me going, I was not ready to take my breast off. And maybe now you've given me the information. I can wait and reassess my discussion in 10 years. So yes, we are in a setting right now in a clinical trial. You're saying a couple really important things. And I think it's really important for our audience to know is that this is an important next step in breast cancer risk stratification, but it's really not a clinically available test. You can't go to your local provider and say, I want SNPs. It sounds like this testing is going on in the context of clinical trials because we're still learning about its best use in clinical practice. Am I right in making that assumption? Absolutely. We need to be doing these clinical trials, population-based, the right cohort in the clinical setting, and be able to then interpret that information and be able to counsel patients in a clinical trial setting and be able to then look at the outcomes and follow up. Yes, we are not at a point today where the test can be ordered by you in the clinic, Denise, but could I be there five years from now? I think we're very close. I think that the clinical trial will help us do that. Now, I do want to qualify one thing today that if somebody goes to get genetic testing through a genetic testing company where their mutations are run, there is a opt-out checkbox that allows the genetic testing companies to draw the SNPs, and they are actually giving a polygenic risk score. but Herein lies the problem. They're not talking to the patients about what are you going to do with that information. Patients don't understand it. So nobody has brought it into a clinical setting to better understand it. That's one of my big concerns. And I mean, when I talk about this, because obviously, as my role in the Center for Individualized Medicine, I'm, I'm a huge advocate for the appropriate use of genetic testing but I really think that it has to involve a genetic counselor because this information is not easy. And, and you use the analogy of the two ends of the spectrum. And for any one individual, we don't know if it's 40% or 90%. And the clinical decision-making, if you're 40 or 90%, may be hugely different. So, you know, involving a genetics counselor, getting in to your office to understand the information is really an important aspect of clinical care. Having a test result is simply a test result. Understanding it is really essential for the patient. And unfortunately, most providers have not had that education. And I've not found Clinical Genomics for Dummies yet. It's a book I'm looking for. But as this science evolves, the books don't keep up. And it's not something I think you can, you know, learn on your own. HTML coding maybe for a website, but not clinical genomics and the implications of polygenetic variants uh, for cancer risks, which huge implications of the results. I agree, but I do think that as we get further into our efficiency of getting that blood test, incorporating it into the right models, 
creating model information that could be at the hands of a clinician in their electronic health record. We should be at a point one day where the clinician should be able to use this information to direct and guide patients in the appropriate care. And I think that will come. It, it should not be a difficult thing to do, but you're right in the meantime, as primary care physicians are looking for being able to get their patients an accurate risk assessment and understanding of that personalized, what are you going to do to prevent me from getting breast cancer? What are you going to do to early detect and explain in the patient's individual situation, here is your personalized risk-reducing prevention plan. That is what I try and do in the clinic today, and we're fortunate in a high-risk breast clinic. We are access point for people who want to come in for that discussion and consider if they're eligible for the trial and then guide them as they're followed year to year as to what we should be doing to manage them appropriately. So we are in a better place for risk assessment in a clinical setting by having a high-risk clinic as an entry point. Yeah, that's my goal too. My hope is that as a primary care doc, that this is going to be part of our language in the future. If you look at the CDC recommendation for tier one recommendations for genomic testing, it is something we should be doing on a population basis because we are missing people. The second question I wanted to ask you to address specifically is, as we've talked about SNPs, my interpretation of some of what you've said is that the SNP role right now is most useful, not only in these patients, both men and women who have one of these mutation-related cancers, but also in the group where there seems to be a familial component, but they're negative for the mutations. So, you know, mom, mom, sister, maybe a grandma had breast cancer. There's other cancers in the family, but testing for the mutations, the BRCA1, BRCA2, and CHECK2 is all negative, and there's no Lynch syndrome. So we don't find one of these commonly recognized, but there is something that makes you think there's a familial component. So is that where SNPs are yeah. more valuable than perhaps the average person who says, I'm just looking to see if I'm a high-risk breast cancer person? Yes, and I want to elaborate and just give a little background in these scenarios. So we are today in a position where if we can identify somebody at high risk, there are, based on the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force guidelines, including the American Society of Clinical Oncology guidelines, where based on your patient's risk factors, that family history you just described, or even a high-risk breast lesion, using these models, we are getting information to be able to determine that somebody is high enough risk to be considered to be taking a medication to prevent breast cancer that are FDA approved, including drugs such as tamoxifen and raloxifene. And in the aromatase inhibitors, studies have shown in a prevention setting can also reduce breast cancer anywhere from 50 to 60%. So we're actually reducing the incidence of breast cancer here. These are the patients who come to me and say, I don't know if I want to take that drug, Dr. Prithi. It's got some side effects. I'm concerned about them. And I tell them, well, if I told you your cholesterol was high, would you take a lipid reducing cholesterol reducing medication? And they'd go, oh yeah, think about it. And so 
I would say to them, if I could tell you your SNPs are telling me you have a high load in your context of your already risk factors, those clinical family risk factors, and gave you new information that could predict you may be actually higher risk than you thought, would you consider taking a drug if you came up higher on your risk assessment? Because we now incorporate the SNPs into that model. And we did that. We did a large trial. We had 150 women who had those exact family histories that you said they were negative for the mutation, had family risk factors, ran them through these models, included their SNPs. And when the SNPs determined that the risk was higher than the calculated risk score on the model, more women significantly were more likely to take a drug to reduce their risk for breast cancer because now it was valuable information and an intervention such as taking a drug was more meaningful. And those who were at lower risk, who I was fortunate to be able to tell a third of them that your scores actually went lower than the calculator, looked at me and said, well, maybe I didn't really need to take the drug, Dr. Pruthi, and maybe I don't want to take it. And I'm like, well, you know, I kind of would support you there. And so we were able to publish those findings in the Cancer Prevention Research Journal in 2021, showing that the SNPs could help us in that clinical setting to better intervene on uptake of these important medicines when the patient was in the right risk stratification to say, now it makes more sense for me to take the drug. Wow. I mean, the analogy is the ASCVD risk calculator that we use every day in primary care yes. for heart disease. Yeah. Um, you know, we look at the correlation of 10-year risk. And of course, we use that and say, if you're greater than 7.5%, you need a drug. And patients don't question our use of the calculator. They often question the drug because they get myalgias, um, sure. which for many of them are serious or alter their activities daily living. But boy, five years from now, if we have a SNP calculator, because we plug in the other things, we plug in age, smoking, diabetes, hypertension, and to have a tool like that in our primary care setting because many of us are familiar with raloxifene, tamoxifen, and those of us who take care of women after they've had breast cancer are often familiar with the use of the aromatase inhibitors and the side effects that patients have. Some tolerate well, some don't. So the future is absolutely fascinating to find out. One last question for you. So in women who've already been diagnosed with breast cancer, mm -hmm. and I'm thinking in particular about patients, for instance, who may have triple negative breast cancer, who may have, I understand, are more at risk perhaps for having some genetic component. Is there any role for SNPs in certain types of cancer, for instance, that don't express receptors like triple negatives? So there again, there is some great work being done at the use of SNPs that could predict more hormone sensitive tumors or in the triple negative setting with those breast cancers when it comes to treatment choices. And so there will be work being done in this area. So yes, they are starting to look at SNPs as it relates to certain biologies of tumor types. So I think that's an exciting area. I do want to qualify one thing, and you heard me say that right at the beginning where I said most of the work has been done in the European consortium. Therein lies where we do have to be very careful as we continue to explore this space and do the research in this that we have to understand 
are the SNPs that are we picked up in African-American or Hispanic women going to carry the same weight or underestimate or overestimate risk before you can say that this is ready for prime time. And I think where we're going to start to see is that more work is being done as larger numbers of SNPs in large population cohorts will be able to tell us that these SNPs are doing us due diligence and being able to predict risk in, in people with other ethnicities. And I'm so excited that that work is already starting to show some benefit that they were able to see in the Hispanic population, very similar SNPs were finding the risk of those were very similar when they were incorporated into the polygenic risk score. Yet for African-Americans, they may have overestimated the risk. So we're starting to watch that data. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's been one of the, the challenges and actually one of the criticisms of some of the work that's gone into looking at some of the genomic data is that it has been not representative necessarily of our United States population because of the underrepresentation of different ethnic groups in specifically from the Latinos, African-American individuals, Hispanics, Native American individuals. And so the extrapolation and generalizability may not be where it needs to be. And so that the calculators may be different. So it, that's in a very important point, I think, that we need to be careful that we don't generalize to everybody because there may be differences. It may be different SNPs. And so we look forward to our ability to attract people into these clinical studies, a wide variety of individuals, so that we learn from what the studies will show. And there's one more important point as we talk about diversity of healthcare today. One of the more important and exciting areas that are passionate to me is that when you are doing risk assessment as a early understanding of your patient's risk, where especially amongst our African-American and Hispanic patients, when they got a truly accurate risk assessment, they were more likely to see the benefits of early detection, imaging, and surveillance. And I think that this is what we as primary care doctors should be doing even more in the next few years as we start looking at that population saying, if I could run your risk assessment and I determined you are actually a higher risk, were you more likely to get your screening? Were you more likely to come in for those imaging tests that would be extremely important in reducing the mortality from these diseases by having a better early detection approach. So I think that we do need to be thinking about risk assessment for all these other reasons to improve our ability to determine who benefits from screening. You'd like to think too that that would start at least to address some of the healthcare disparities that we see because of the failure we've had in the past to adequately screen groups. You know, if, if someone tells their friend, their neighbor, their family member that it made a difference. We have been talking about, for lack of a better term, SNPs and cancer and early detection and, and the great promise I think that this holds for us. And so I want to thank you, Dr. Pruthi, for your time and your insights and the excitement I think that you bring to this whole area. If you have enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please follow us wherever you subscribe to podcasts. See your genes really matter and maybe early detection can protect you and your loved ones from cancer in the future. Thank you, Dr. Pruthi. Thank you very much. And it was such a pleasure being part of this program. Mm -hmm.